Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Right back to John McAdam and Steve Generelli as they discuss the World Wrestling Federation in the spring of 1983. Enjoy. Uh, so let me see. Long Island, May 6th, 1983. And this is something now, I, at this point, the WWF and the After magazines, actually all of the magazines, are kind of at war because the WWF would no longer let them take pictures at ringside so that, you know, basically so WWF magazine would be the only ones with access to that. And the magazines had suddenly become very critical of the WWF, like taking everything they did with a very critical eye. And one of those things was the main event at Long Island where Bob Backlund beat Samoan Afa in the main event. And at the time, Steve, I was like, you know, I don't I don't remember a single complaint when Bob Backlund defended against Afa at Madison Square Garden in 1980, but yet they are just pounding the table about why won't Bob Backlund take on tougher challengers. Hey, uh, the um, the wrestling magazines of those days, and I remember even getting the Norm Keitzer magazines, and especially the Keitzer magazines as you got into 84 and 85, they, they, they wouldn't even label it as WWF anymore. They called it McMahon Wrestling. <laughs> And, oh, yeah, that's right. And, yeah, and they they really went really uh, hardcore on them. But 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 you're right. Uh, they made a big stink in the after magazines about when Backlund came to Houston and wrestled Afa or Sika and and wouldn't wrestle like uh, Dusty or or you know a, a known challenger that was a uh, big in Houston. And you know I, I guess the you know it, rightfully so uh, the George Napolitanos and the Bill Afters of the world uh, they did feel like uh, the rug was pulled out from under them because they were always, you know, pro WWF and, and I'm sure WWF really was the main focus on their covers since they were all based in New York. And so uh, there was definitely a lot of heat with the magazines in this, in this time frame. Well, it, it's more than just pulling the rug out from them. I mean, he, Vince is actively trying to put them out of business. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, it is America. You know, uh, Vince wants to put his own magazine out, and they have their own established magazines. And, you know, and I, and I would say that as, as a person who did buy the magazines uh, somewhat uh, semi-regularly, uh, I would say that the after magazines actually did get better and more uh, – a little more informative in this time frame as compared to the complete fictional stuff that they used to put out in the seventies. So uh, maybe the competition helped improve their product. I, I, I totally agree with you. This is America and we're supposed to have competition. I just get how after and Napolitano, et cetera, felt about it. It's like, okay, you know, we almost had a partnership for decades, and now you guys are trying to take us out. Meanwhile, the Keitzer magazines went from being affiliated with the WWF. It was the Keitzer magazines who put out the programs. It was the Keitzer magazines that were sold at WWF events, and now not, not only, hey, you're not doing that anymore, but you have no access, and we're trying to put you out of business too. Yeah, those magazines were so good too. They were such high quality. When the WWF programs and magazines started to come out, they they weren't really bad. I mean, I think the initial ones 
were, were fairly good, but as time would uh, kind of uh, roll out, they got more and more watered down and more superficial and and just more showcases for the the house uh, <laughs> house dialogue of WWF and, and all, the, all the stuff that they believed in. And it wasn't anything informative for the wrestling fan who was discerning and wanted to know more about so-and-so. And it was it was disappointing at times. They had really good pictures, and none, nothing that was in that magazine was even worth reading. And I say that as someone who used to read the after magazines. I'm like, okay, I'll read this garbage, but not, you know, this is so much worse. I'm not going to read this. All right. And with that, once again, I, I hope everyone's enjoying the video we're sharing, the audio we're sharing, excuse me. And once again, for educational purposes, let's check out Tito Santana on Buddy Rogers Corner. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My guest this week happens to be a real favorite of World Wrestling Federation. This fellow was perhaps as good an athlete as you can get in the world today. Number one, he was outstanding in football, played two years for the Kansas City Chiefs, and was also World Wrestling Federation tag team holder with Ivan Putsky, none other than Tito Santana. Buddy, thank you very much. I love the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. I love the fans. I want to thank all the fans. You know, I've been gone for about three and a half years, and I've been getting letters from the fans around here. Everywhere I've been, the people have followed me. They've followed my career, and I've done well. And it's great to be back. Quiero tomar la oportunidad para saludar a toda la gente mexicana, los puertorriqueños, los cubanos, todos los latinos que me están escuchando. Me siento muy orgulloso de regresar aquí a New York. The Big Apple, baby. Arriba! With that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Thank you. Yeah, and I played four years for the Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> Steve, I used to. I used to have football encyclopedias, and I would look up guys like, you know, Bobby Duncombe, who they had, you know, say had an all-pro career. And I'd be like, wow, why, why can't I find these guys anywhere? <laughs> it, it seemed in the old days of wrestling, as long as you had uh, been in a, a training camp or got cut within the first week of a camp, you could say, hey, I was uh, a guard for the St. Louis Cardinals. It just, uh, the time have changed certainly i mean charlie cook starting linebacker for the pittsburgh steelers for god knows how many years and i'm like wow i've seen plenty of pittsburgh steelers <laughs> games and i've never seen charlie cook <laughs> but anyway all right we have a tumultuous couple of days coming up in the wwf uh we have the taping in allentown may 10th 1983 just an ironic thing, Morocco, uh, Don Morocco pins Eddie Gilbert in a non-title match. Ivan Putski makes his return after a four, it says a four-month absence here. It genu genuinely felt like longer. I, I could have sworn Putski was gone for longer than that, but Ivan Putski was a big deal in the WWF. He does not get treated well on the internet. He did not get treated well in the newsletters, but Steve, he was a star, at least in my eyes. Yeah, he, he was. And I, um, you know, I was watching matches in Binghamton, New York, and he headlined a lot of the shows there whenever Backlund couldn't make it to Binghamton. Him and Strombo were uh, headlined many of the shows. And, and the, the way our communities were, uh, you know, whether you were in Scranton or Binghamton, uh, you had lots of uh, pockets of a lot of a Polish uh, 
families and Russian families and different types. And and just like uh, maybe the Italians would have loved Bruno San Martino, uh, the Polish families loved Ivan Putski. And, and he was extremely popular in these uh, B and C city towns for year after year after year. And he faced guys like Ivan Koloff and Ken Patera, and they had a great test of strength. And he was always uh, very, very popular. Not one of my favorites, but he was a, a very popular headliner. Not a favorite of mine, but he was someone that I absolutely bought as a star. And, you know, you could have him up in Concord, New Hampshire, the Ice Arena or, you know, the Portsmouth Ice Arena, and you will sell tickets with Ivan Putski on top. I mean, I'm not saying he was good, but I'm saying he was a draw, and that's what mattered. Also returning, and I, I'll i tell you something, I have never, I don't think I've ever been in as, in as much pain being a wrestling fan as I was when this happened. George the Animal Steel returns, defeats. Barry Hart with via submission with the flying hammerlock. Steele's return after an 18-month absence. I mean, Steve, for me, this was a kick in the stomach. I couldn't stand George Steele. I couldn't stand the silliness of his act. And as soon as I saw this, I'm like, we're going to have a main event in Boston with George Steele in it again. And they and, and they did. Well, there's a chapter in uh, Backlund's book where he just talks about 1983. Uh, I guess his book, you know, every chapter is a different year, basically. And he did talk about Steele's return, and uh, he did talk specifically about how they had worked out some weird, quirky matches where uh, uh, Backlund would get to beat him in like 90 seconds and stuff like that. And and in uh, George Steele has a little uh, mess part of the book where he gets to say that uh, the older Vince McMahon had basically at one point during this year said to him, uh, you know, George, Hey, you know, thank you for coming back. It's been great to have you for one last time. And, and basically is going to say goodbye to him. They're not going to bring him back again, which I'm sure would make you feel good, John. But uh, as it turned out, you know, Vince really had a fondness for George Steele and he would, uh, young Vince would bring him back next year. And of course, when the national expansion and uh, NBC happened, uh, George Steele uh, turning into a baby face got to be, a big deal and uh, he was really popular right up until wrestlemania 3 and even beyond yeah they used him up until uh, at least uh, through 1988 if not into 1989 and one thing i can say about george Steele, i didn't like you know i didn't like him as a wrestler i didn't like the whole act but supposedly he was someone that everyone liked yeah, yeah. I, I think from what I've heard, when he became an agent, a lot of people hated him as far as uh, I think that some people said like he became like, uh, you know, the reverse of what he had, had been before. Um, he kind of became like a double agent as an agent. But, uh, uh, you know, that, that's that's for another podcast, not enough for 83. <laughs> Okay, and we have the return of Tito Santana on this taping as well, and as you heard, we had Sergeant Slaughter attack Bob Backlund. Now, this the same night, uh, 5-10-1983, Eddie Gilbert sustains a serious neck injury for, following a car wreck. Uh, supposedly, this was awful. Eddie Gilbert falls asleep behind the wheel, slams into the back of a truck, and it, the whole thing catches fire, which is why Eddie had a, a beard for the rest of his life to hide the scarring from the from the flames. I, I never knew that was the reason for the beard, but that makes perfect sense. Uh you know, again in the Backlund book, uh he uh Bob Backlund mentions that uh Eddie Gilbert it was somebody that he saw with a ton of potential and they did try to work a kind of an angle where uh Gilbert would be his protege, uh, you know, uh that that kind of a thing. But uh 
Eddie Gilbert, in in Backlund's eyes, Eddie Gilbert was just a disappointment because I guess he was messed up on drugs or you know, <laughs> pills, whatever, and uh, and then that's what probably led to the accident. And uh, and he, I don't think he'd be in the WWF a lot longer after this. Uh, he was there until about, mm, I want to say February or March of 1984, and then he went to Memphis. But mm-hmm. I do remember that being in, in Bob Backlund's book. It's so funny that Eddie Gilbert became one of my favorite wrestlers in the mid to late 80s. And 83, I just couldn't stand the guy. I'm like, okay, he's Bob Backlund with a southern accent. He's a total nerd, and, that, and that's just the opposite of what Eddie was in real life. Yeah, he was on one of these shows where um, they they gave him like the unfortunate place of like being like the next to last match of the night. It was like a match with him against Jose Estrada, I think, uh, maybe right before an Andre match or a big tag team match. And uh, you know, the, the the crowd was very respectful. They didn't you know start booing or you know you know killing the match or whatever. But he was okay. Technically, he was okay, but he was extremely small and just seemed very very shy very like non-personality and but but like you say i mean he would go on to have a great personality as a heel and would definitely have a nice little career for himself uh but it was filled with lots of disappointment and weird stuff happening to him uh yeah to, to say the least i mean it i i wish there was an alternative universe where either a watts did not go out of business and eddie kept doing what he was doing in mid-south or B, if Dusty Rhodes, uh, after that purchase, had seen what a lot of people saw in Eddie Gilbert. But tell you what, before we start, move, move on to the heavy stuff that happened the next day. Let's hear from uh, Buddy Rogers' corner again with Captain Lou Albano and the Samoans. Ladies and gentlemen, this week I have a very unusual guest. And from what I can see, I've got the world tag team champions Appa and Sika and then perhaps two snakes one 18 foot and one 6 foot but I will say one thing hey watch this guy's head tell him to watch him this is the biggest animal I've introduced yet but I'll take the small one and let you say what you would well I'm Captain Lou Albano baby and I've said Buddy Rogers that my champions train daily, move and groove with this 18 foot 178 pound python, they can do it all the man, the the, the, the boa the python has ligament strength and my two Samoans can get it all together, stand here brother let me show you the head of this, take a look at this that's good enough for me as far as I'm concerned I, no way, get your filthy hands off of me ladies and gentlemen, with that we'll go back to ringside Ah, uh, you know, we just have the audio and not the video, but the Samoans are out there with like this 15 foot snake wrapped around both of their necks. I, those two are crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, Lou Albano uh, definitely deserves a lot of credit. I mean, he just uh, he was really the, uh, the the essential lead heel of the WWF. I mean, the other managers were good, but he he was really the uh, top manager for sure. And I, I just saw, you know, we, we talked about earlier, uh, uh, Dutch Mantel was talking about, uh, we talked about Dutch Mantel earlier, but he was uh, on another show. He was trying to create a, uh, when you have the uh, top four of something, uh, 
the uh, the Mount Rushmore, the Mount, the Mount Rushmore, and and him, it was actually him and Kenny Boland, and they were talking about uh, the top managers, and they were talking to Albano, and they were asking like, well, I thought he, I thought Albano was good, but I don't know if he was Mount Rushmore, but from my point of view, he was, he was definitely Mount Rushmore. He was really just there was nothing like him. I mean that that really speaks to me about you know where those guys grew up versus where we grew up. I mean, I when when the Observer came out with its Hall of Fame issue for the first time, I think it was 1995 or 1996. I was like, you know, where is Captain Lou Albano? I mean, I thought he was that obvious, and then I'm like, okay, I get it. I grew up in the Northeast, um, and he had more of an impact on me. But you know, you go back and watch him now. I mean, he was something else. Yeah, there was there was nobody like him. I mean, he was. Uh you know, in the in the early days with Bruno, and then the, this entire Backlund era, and even the beginning of the Hogan era. I mean, Albano was right front and center with everybody. And uh, by the end of '86, it was really his time to go. And I think he really thought he was going to be this big movie star. But he did have a good run of the Super Mario deal and made some good money and and retired and did come back to wrestling a little bit. But he had a really good career. Yeah, he did. I mean, he was just an icon in the Northeast. And I mean, we'll talk about this again at some other time. But I, I do remember when they first dropped the hint that Captain Lou Albano was turning babyface, I was blown away. I'm like, this cannot possibly happen. Lou Albano was a good guy, but it happened. So anyway, we talked about the TV taping that happened on May 10th, 1983. Uh, Eddie Gilbert suffers a car wreck that same night. The next day... Nancy Argentino, Jimmy Snooker's girlfriend of nearly a year, passed away from undetermined brain injuries in Jimmy Snooker's hotel room. The death was ruled an accident. Steve, I knew nothing about this until I started getting the newsletters, uh, 86, 87. And it was reported as, well, there may have been foul play and Vince McMahon may have done something to make this go away. And now 2023, I mean, we know Jimmy Snooker killed her. Yeah. <laughs> it, the, it, the evidence points in that direction. Can I put it that way? The it, it, it's interesting that uh, Morocco was really there for both of these incidents. He was there for the mm-hmm. Eddie Gilbert thing. He was there for for the aftermath of the uh, Nancy Argentina thing. You know, and we talked about this earlier in this show. I mean, Snuka's career trajectory would never be the same again after this. I mean, yeah, they kept him up near the top. Yeah, that he was at, even at WrestleMania one, and and he was a second in the main event, but. What could have been for Jimmy Snooker, like I said, maybe WrestleMania too. Maybe he could have been a, the heel against Hogan. I mean, the sky's the limit. I mean, he could have been anything. But uh, after this, I'm sure Vince realized he, he couldn't trust him again. I mean, it's funny how much things have changed because if something like that, even if it was ruled an accident, there's no way Jimmy Snooker gets work after that. There's there's no way. But 1983, he goes back to work the next day as if nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. Re- wrestling back then wasn't what what it is now. Or I mean, nothing. You know, you know, it was it was it was so off the grid. <laughs> it was so completely off the grid. I mean, even when Hogan beat the Iron Sheik, I mean, you had to watch the wrestling show to know that Hogan beat the Sheik. It wasn't on the cover of the newspapers. There was no internet. So, so something like this that, you know, they definitely didn't want you to know about um, if it emerged. I, I, I think Irv Mushnick had a story about it in Penthouse like years later. And it was like, yeah, that's not really mainstream Penthouse. So. 
Well, well, don't tell that to Jim Crockett Promotions in 1988 when they had Pet of the Year as the uh, judge for the Flair Sting match. Yeah, even back then, I'm like that is that's really poor judgment on their part. But anyway, uh, I mean, it, it's just funny how you know, like I said, Snuka. Yes, he got de pushed a little bit. He certainly didn't have the run that maybe he would have had, but I mean, he remained gainfully employed by the WWF uh, until right around the middle of 1985, and then after that, the AWA couldn't wait to get their hands on him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the AWA was completely desperate, and I guess he was desperate for a home or a paycheck, and, uh, and, and you know, because this case just kind of dried up and went away, I mean, Vince brought him back for that final run in 89, and uh, he was a, a mid Carter, Carter at best, but yeah, Hall of Fame. And he even, you know, even in the mid two thousands, he came back for that that WrestleMania match where it was him and Steamboat and Piper against uh, Chris Jericho. I mean, uh, that that's almost unfathomable, but it happened. No, I mean, you know, once again, you, I mean, you hit the hammer on the head. It it felt like. Right around 10 years ago that Jimmy Snuka went from, you know, he's a, a a legend that, you know, may have been involved in whatever to, you know, Jimmy Snuka, murderer. That's what he is yeah in a lot of people's eyes. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, not that I'm an important person or anything, but I mean, in my eyes, I, I could never really think of him the same way again. I mean, he was... I, he was a you know great wrestler. <laughs> you can't take that away from him. But you know, however it happened to Nancy, uh, you just can't look at him the same way again. At least in my eyes, I couldn't. No, you can't. Um, by the way, Brian last and I, when uh, Jimmy Snuka died, I thought we did a really good tribute for Jimmy Snuka on the six oh five. If you're interested in that, check it out. But I thought he and I did a really good job with that, and we managed to acknowledge who Jimmy Snooker was outside the ring while still honoring his career. I think the analogy I use is like, look, you can't talk about the history of the Buffalo Bills or or USC football, for that matter, without talking about O.J. Simpson. And while you can still acknowledge what he did, you know, you can acknowledge his accomplishments as well. Boston Garden, May 14th, 1983. A rather nondescript card, except for one thing, and I apologize if I've talked about this too many times they had a 41 minute and 30 second match between Bob Backlund and Ivan Koloff at the time it was the best match I had ever seen live and I you know, I'd seen a decent amount of wrestling Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair would top that May 30th I think it was no, no May 29th 1984 but this match was spectacular it was 41 minutes of all action and the crowd gave the match itself a standing ovation. It was it was unreal. If there was one match I could have a a recording of a film of that I could resee, it would be this one, Steve. Looking back at, at the days, uh, you know, this period we're talking about, like '83, it's really a shame that the WWF had their policy in the way they did things because. By this point, Ivan Koloff had this rich, rich history in the WWF. I mean, he had started, I think, in the late 60s. He had had MSG matches in the late 60s. He became uh, Bruno's top challenger. He beats Bruno in probably the episode of the century. He's a short-term champion. He comes back in the mid-70s. He's this huge contender against Bruno again. They sell out everywhere they go. 
he faces back on. They have sellouts everywhere they go. And now he's 83 and he's, he's lost like 40 pounds. He's in this super, super peak condition. I mean, uh, he's just a wrestling machine. He's, he's getting to be that uncle Ivan period, but, uh, he's a remarkable wrestler, but had they been able to communicate to the fans watching at home, this great history, you know, that this is like a hall of fame wrestler you're watching against Bob Backlund. I think it would have made the story that they were telling so much more vibrant and so much more interesting rather than they had him come out and they act like he's a brand new wrestler that they've never seen before. I mean, he had this great, great history, but they ignored it completely. You know, I was going to say, if if not for that match that only I and, you know, 15,000 other people saw, and a lot, let's face it, a lot of those people are gone now, right? Yep. I would, have been, I would have been like, you know, Ivan Koloff had this run that was just so unremarkable in the WWF. He was a one-and-done challenger against Backlund. You know, it just didn't it didn't make sense. I mean, you know, but again, we had that, that great match, but that's it. I mean, I think they could have capitalized with a, a lot better run for Ivan Koloff in 1983 than they did. I mean, he was just, you know, another, like, Killer Khan type challenger in 83. The only thing, uh, I mean, uh, if it wasn't for me watching these matches because of the podcast, I mean, the thing I remember, the thing that stood out about 83 and Koloff was he had a really neat series of matches with Patterson after a TV angle with Patterson. It was kind of the battle of the french canadians there but uh they had some really good matches together that year yeah i mean that was you know in, in fairness though that's kind of a forgotten feud i mean for kind of unprovoked of uh, koloff slaps patterson in the mouth and boom we have you know while patterson is trying to interview koloff and boom we have a feud based on that but that feud was not like the patterson slaughter feud of 1981 this was like okay they had this one match and then ivan koloff went back to the carolinas yeah yeah and and his his career was so remarkable uh had another uh, few good years in the carolinas and uh he just um it, it's it's amazing and, and uh you know the history that Backlund had with Koloff. They'd even have a match together in the, in the '90s for Herb Abrams, like in '81, oh, '92. Like right. I mean, it's amazing how uh, they wrestled each other in three decades. I think uh, you're right. I forgot all about that UWF match with Bob Backlund <laughs> and Ivan Koloff. I think that was '91 yep. on like one of his sports channel. Uh, it w- oh, no, I think this was a pay per view. Yeah, the Blackjack Brawl. I think it was probably. Oh that. my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I waited to get that on tape from someone. I, I, I did not order that. All right, Houston, Texas, May 20th, 1983. And I'm just pointing this show out for a quick reason. Uh, the undercard was all Mid-South guys, you know, Junkyard Dog, Mr. Wrestling 2, Butch Reed, King Kong Bundy, etc. But then they have two main events. Nick Bockwinkle uh, defeats Dusty Rhodes, and then Bob Backlund defeats WWF Tag Team Champion Offa, and again, the After Magazines were all over this one. Bockwinkle is wrestling Dusty Rhodes, and Bob Backlund is wrestling a tag team guy. Well, I think Paul Bosch really liked to have these uh, special attraction matches. He he liked bringing in guys from New York. I mean, uh, you said it yourself, John. He had uh, Bruno and Billy Graham there in 1980. Uh, he wasn't adverse to bringing in guys from other promotions, and he had Bob Backlund, the you know, world champion. So uh, it just it just made his card that much more uh, enticing for fans to come out to. 
Yeah, and again, even as someone who, you know, knows what the deal was with the Aftermags, knows that wrestling's a work, I just, I'm a little bit surprised that they didn't have a better opponent for Bob Backlund on this show. I mean, put him put him up against, I don't know, put him up against King Kong Bundy or the Masked Superstar, yeah. whatever. Yeah, Mark Lewin, somebody. <laughs> Yeah, anybody. Jeez. All right. So quickly, we're back. They go back out to Los Angeles and San Diego, back to back, May 21st, 1983, May 22nd, 1983. Uh, let me see. No Bob Backlund on these shows. Wow. The main event for the first one looks like Rocky Johnson and Don Morocco, and then Jimmy Snuka and Buddy Rose on the undercard, uh, Mil Moscaris and Ray Stevens. And then it's mostly. Local guys again. Then we go to San Diego on the 22nd. Snooker versus Morocco is the main event. Moscaris versus Buddy Rose and Rocky Johnson against Ray Stevens. I think, I think at this point they, they realized, uh, you know, that the WWF was expanding. They realized you didn't have to have the champion in the main event every night. I mean, in the old days, they you couldn't. Yeah, in the old days, you had to, had to have the champion in the main event. But now, now um, they they knew that like the Intercontinental Title, they knew that some other featured matches could be just as good as a World Title match. You know, in Boston, the entire time Bob Backlund was champion, the main event was either Bob Backlund defending the title or Bruno Sammartino in a special event, uh, and usually that would be you know Bruno. Uh, wrestling in Boston on a Saturday night while Backlund was in Philadelphia on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time, you know, when Hulk Hogan won the belt and they announced the main event was Sergeant Slaughter and the Iron Sheik. I was taken aback. I was like, wait a minute, where's the world championship match? This is the Boston Garden. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and as time would tell, I mean, when you look at those garden shows from the mid-'80s, MSG, I should say, I mean, they did get away from having Hogan in the main event uh, quite often. I know in 86 they had that run where uh, some version of uh, Santana against Macho Man Randy Savage was in the main event for, like, a four-month period where they had, you know, Adonis and Bruno involved and they had these different matches. But, you know, it was just the WWF was doing things differently. Uh, they didn't have to rely and just the champion anymore they had these you know great great uh stars that were almost as good as the world champion and you know they had to adapt too i mean they were running three shows a night and hogan would sometimes be in japan so you know they were they were changing with the business so all right with that i'll tell you what let's have another buddy rogers corner with tito santana for review purposes gentlemen my guest this week is tito santana Without a doubt, one of the best wrestling Latins I've ever seen. And not only that, he comes on with a tremendous record in the football field, and he's cut quite a path. I mean, a superb path in the wrestling game today. And I know he's got some things on his mind that I'd like to have him bring it out. Buddy, it's, it's my pleasure just to sit here and talk to you. You're a legend. I respect you, and it's my honor to be sitting here and talking to you. But I want to thank, thank the people from the World Light Wrestling Federation. I've only been back a, sh a few short weeks, and the support they've given me has been tremendous. I love it. I'm happy to be back. But the most important thing, the reason that I came back is because I came back after some titles. One particular title held by Don Morocco, the Intercontinental Belt. Morocco, you've been dodging people. You don't want to put up the belt on the line, but with the people's support, I'm going to force you into a title match. That's my goal, and my goal is to win that title for me, Morocco. 
le garantizo a toda la gente latina que me está escuchando, vine a luchar aquí para pelear y representar a todos los latinos como yo quiero que sean representados. Me siento muy orgulloso de ser mexicano y estoy aquí para representar a todos ustedes. ¡Arriba! And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. One of the best wrestling Latins I've ever seen. <laughs> well, well, Tito Santana had been completely wasted in the Georgia promotion. And, yes. I, and I know you mentioned on a, on a recent show that Vince really seemed to like to kind of steal wrestlers from Georgia, whether it was the Samoans or somebody else who had been there, uh, you know, Orndorff, uh, but, but, but Tito Santana, where these other promotions just didn't think much of him at all, uh, he got a huge push in WWF, and rightfully so. I mean, he became such a, a great uh, performer. And I think, uh, you know, as far as Vince and Linda felt, uh, I don't think they felt that they had a better employee than Tito Santana. I mean, he, he did everything they asked him to do. He sh always showed up on time, always had a smile on his face. I think he was the model employee amongst the wrestlers. That makes sense. Now, I've mentioned this before. I mean, I, I did not see Tito as a major star, partially because of that Georgia run where they had him as an underneath guy, and we're talking late 82, early 83. Uh, and then we're talking about, you know, he wrestled Iron Mike Sharp to a draw in Madison Square Garden. I mean, he just didn't seem to be destined for that sort of push. And then I was there at the Boston Garden when he won the Intercontinental Championship. I literally couldn't believe it. I, I thought I would watch TV the next week and it just wouldn't be acknowledged and Morocco would be out there with the belt. But I'll tell you what, his feet grew to fill the shoes. Oh, yeah. And I'm curious, uh, the night that that title change happened, uh, when you got to the building that night, did you notice like extra cameras or anything like that? No, it gets even better than that. Right before the Morocco Santana match, which was awful, by the way, <laughs> it, which was it was the last match of the night, and they they suddenly put up lighting around the ring, and I'm like, yo, what is going on here? Because I was like, I knew Santana wasn't winning the title. Are they going to run some kind of angle? It's like you know, and Santana won the belt, and the um. Again, this is only a theory. I'm not presenting this as a fact, but the match was so bad. You, you know how, like, they say they didn't have footage of the match, mm -hmm. Steve? I, I think the match was so bad. They're just like, you know, screw it. We'll we'll show a couple of highlights, and that'll be it. Right. Yeah, they, they did have some kind of story, something like the, the footage said, you know, doesn't exist or it got damaged or something like yes. that. got damaged or something like that. Anyway, one thing I noticed, and I want to thank, by the way, the history of WWE. I'm using that site for the results and kind of a, a you know, we're kind of basing this podcast on what they have out there. So thank you very much, Graham. And, you know, thank you for everything you do. They, the WWF, they didn't have the exact dates, but they're touring Kuwait in 1983. Uh, Kuwait City, they had four, four shows, uh, and these are like worse than high school shows. I mean, they brought no one to the table. Uh, the Moondogs were there. They hadn't been in the WWF in two years. Uh, Putski was there, so I guess he's the big star. Pedro Morales is on this tour. He was gone from the WWF. And, you know, just these, I mean, just for example, here's one show, Guria against Moondog Rex, Morales against Moondog Spot, Pete Sanchez against Johnny Rods, Mr. Fuji against SD Jones, and Ivan Putski against Jose Estrada. Now, you know, this show, we wouldn't draw to a high school, but I guess 
in Kuwait, they're not used to having big-time wrestling. But, Steve, to me, this is historic because it shows that Vince McMahon Jr. has big plans. He's now promoting not just in Los Angeles, San Diego. He's promoting in Kuwait. Well, as you and I know, I mean, you know, looking back on the history of wrestling, especially in the 70s and 80s, I mean, uh, there's there's legendary stories about uh, that world championship wrestling promotion in uh, Australia, the one that Jim Barnett ran. And I mean, he had the biggest, uh, you know, this huge roster of talent. I mean, any name that you could just think of off the top of your head work there. I mean, he had uh, Bruno, he had Spiros Arian and Killer Carl Cox. I mean, all these big, big names. So, so using Australia as an example, uh, now we're talking about Kuwait. I mean, these these far, far away places. But you know, it's no different than the United States. You know, we had areas here that were just completely barren of wrestling shows. So now he's bringing wrestling shows to parts of the world that hadn't seen them ever, or maybe not in a long, long time. So it's just another revenue source. And and I think that's one of the reasons they brought Santana back because Morales is finishing up here uh, doing these Kuwait uh, deals, and then he'd be gone. He'd be going to wrestle for uh, Capital Sports in Puerto Rico. And uh, it was good to have uh, Tito Santana in as, as a Latin star for the Latin audience and for the, the fans to enjoy. No, that, that totally makes sense. All right, on to Madison Square Garden, May 23rd, 1983. Uh, again, kind of, I want to say a throwaway show because they, they had Dusty Rhodes making a special appearance. I'm pretty sure this is, uh, aside from J.J. Dillon making an appearance in Madison Square Garden in 84, this is the first, last time the WWF brought in talent from outside the promotion for Madison Square Garden. Uh, Dusty Rhodes beat Samoan Samula, but that's the only match that's kind of a big deal. Well, you've got, you know, Jimmy Snooker against one of the Samoans. So it, it just goes to show you how strong the main, oh, they had Rocky Johnson against Don Morocco, too. I take that back. But Bob Backlund against Sergeant Slaughter, this is after the riding crop angle is the main event. Um, I mean, Madison Square Garden is still doing huge business with Bob Backlund on top. I, I certainly give him credit for that. Hey, I actually watched uh, some of this card this morning, including that match. And, uh, and and Backlund got a huge reaction again. I mean, he he won on a DQ, uh, but you know the, the fans were just going crazy for him. And uh, he still had the welts from the TV angle. And, uh, you know, it's it just, it just kind of f- fun uh, to watch these old shows. I mean, this was the first one uh, from watching these shows on Peacock. This was the first one where Monsoon, who was the announcer at ringside, really uh, hyped that this is the World Wrestling Federation. And they even showed the WWF logo a few times during the show, which had never been done before. And I found that quite interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. They are starting to differentiate themselves from just, you know, hey, this is all pro wrestling all in one, you know, all in one big bowl to, hey, this is the World Wrestling Federation. Landover, Maryland, May 28th, worthy of mention because Bob Backlund is once again at a major arena defending the title against Samoan Alpha. <laughs> just, you know, more ammunition for the magazines. One thing I just want to add quickly about the MSG show that blew my mind uh, sure. uh, is is um, there was a match like in, I think it's the one you mentioned. Uh, Jimmy Snuka wrestled uh, one of the uh, Samoans and beat him. And but when he came to the ring, he did have Buddy Rogers by his side. And uh, when um, Howard Finkel introduced 
Buddy Rogers, he actually made the point of saying uh, the only man to have ever held both the WWF and the NWA world title. I mean, and to think, you know, of all the stuff that we've seen since that they would even acknowledge the NWA title completely blew my mind. And and I'm thinking to myself, maybe the, the reason that he, he they went to the trouble of saying that was, you know, again, Vince is expanding and maybe Vince is thinking in the back of his head at this time in April or May, maybe he's thinking like, Gee, if I can only get Harley Race at the end of the year, have him come in with the title, and we'll do title versus title, uh, whether whether it's Hogan against Race or whoever against uh, Race, and and then unify the titles. Well, by this point, Harley Race had not regained the NWA championship yet sure. from Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you're right. You know, it's very possible that Vince McMahon could have been thinking, "Hey, could I recruit the NWA champion to come in here and kind of make a mess out of that championship, or at least make a mess of the NWA promoters?" Yeah, because we know uh, from history, we know that he had already made a bid on the AWA to buy them. I think maybe by this point, he already received the rejection but you know it just seemed like vince had his irons in every fire and was just trying to put together the ultimate deal that would make the wwf the supreme thing that it ended up being i i really wish i had more information on vince's attempt to buy the awa did did he try to buy it in 1983 well supposedly he met with Vern and greg uh twice the second time was when they said, hey, we, we need to think about it. And, and Finn says, I don't negotiate or something like that. But oh, but, but I think they did did meet a couple of times in 83. I'm pretty sure it was 83. Okay, because, I mean, I, I don't think Vern was part of the NWA by that point. Um, they certainly didn't talk about the NWA or anything like that. So, I mean, it's very possible, you know, Vince, prob- Vince may have said, and again, I'm speculating, you know, why don't we work together against the NWA? I mean, that would make perfect sense to me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting how it all played out. Okay. So now we, we finally get, let me see, the WWF in Allentown, the Invaders debut. Now, if you have been a WWF fan like Steve and I were at the time, you knew the pattern when it came to the tag team titles. The Samoans had re- won the championship and usually a couple of months after that title switch either a new team would be formed or in this case a new team came in the invaders and when they did i just automatically assumed well here are the next wwf tag team champions in this case, I don't think I made that assumption just because they were so small. I, I, I was going to say they were so small by WWF standards. Yeah, and, and I guess it was Johnny Rivera and Jose Gonzalez, who, of course, killed Brody a few years later. But um, th- they were okay. It's just kind of a opening act or a prelim tag team. They were okay, but I just didn't really um, you know, think of them as championship material. I, I, you know, in a vacuum, I would not have either, but I mean, that's just, you know, the way it always played out in the WWF. And to this day, I think, you know, just speculation here that the invaders would have won the titles had Vince McMahon just not, you know, I think he brought them in 
to put the titles on them. That was the original intent. And then they just changed their mind. They're like, no, we got to go with someone bigger because we're, we're becoming a, a bigger company. Again, that's speculation on my part, but I believe it. Well, well, later on, of course, you'd have all these teams come in. I mean, the, the Briscoes come in at one point and, you know, there, there's been speculation that they were going to win, but they, they didn't win. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there was just so much talent coming in uh, and not everybody had a chance to win the title, I guess. That that's one of my favorite wrestling stories. That there's a snowstorm in Hartford, Connecticut, and they're supposed to fly. The Briscoes are supposed to fly somewhere in the Midwest, and Jack Briscoe just gets up, changes his flight to a flight to Tampa, and is never heard from again. <laughs> he he called it he called it a career right there. Right there in the middle of a snowstorm in Hartford. All right. The other, well, the big thing that happened on this taping is Don Morocco is a guest at Buddy Rogers Corner. And we're going to play that for you now for review purposes. And there's suddenly a pop in the middle of Morocco speaking. And it's Jimmy Snooker coming out for his match with Don Kernodal. Let's roll that out, please. My guest this week is the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, Don Morocco. It seems like there's a lot of confusion as far as Don's concerned. It seems that he feels everyone disrespects him. Well, I'd like to find out and just wonder why or what's on his mind. Buddy Rogers, just a few months ago, you said Rocky Johnson was fit to get in the ring. I have proved all over the world that that man can't beat me. I hear this wetback come out here, Tito Santana, never been anywhere, never done anything, and he wants a match with Magnificent Morocco. Everywhere I go, people are yelling beach bump. Bob Backlund gets out here, and they let him exercise for one hour. They don't let me, I can go, I shut up, you ghost. I can, I can, I can anything Backlund. I do the step test from Harvard step test for one hour, Nobody ever mentions anything about that. Nobody ever mentions about all the hours I spend at the gym. How I was the first person ever to reverse the first figure four headlock and the figure four leg. Nobody talks about how great I am the one. You see this right here. I am the one that has brought this title into contention in every continent. In every continent, every continent in the world, I have made this belt to be the most prestigious belt in professional wrestling today. And now, and now you send this, he's got the nerve, he's got the nerve to walk in during my time. When the champion is here, Superfly Snooker. Superfly Snooker looking oh. at Morocco as Morocco is Morocco is really upset, feeling that this interview was apparently interfered with, and he is putting the bad mouth on Snooker. Look at Snooker just smiling at him. He's not going to lose his cool. Morocco now up on the apron. Morocco continuing. Oh, he spit. Morocco just spit all over Snooker. I can't believe it. He, ad- he absolutely just spit right all over. 
Look up being cool, but he won't be cool for long. Stucker keeping his cool. Oh, look at that! Unbelievable! Stucker on the rocker, ripping his coat apart. Stucker! He just tore him apart. Stuka, all over Morocco, disgracing him, hammering away. They're trying to keep, they're trying to keep him, trying to keep Stuka back at Morocco in the ring. Morocco just grabbed the microphone. Oh no, Morocco just let Stuka have it right in the head with that microphone. Step the microphone off. Stuka. Hammering back, Morocco, Stuka just going at it like two wild animals. Stuka, hammering away on Morocco. They're trying to restrain Stuka. Stuka, whatever it is Morocco said to him and it spit on him, I can't believe it. These two want to have that. Stuka, look, he has busted open badly. Stuka, getting in a couple of licks. No one's going to stop Snooker now, I'll tell you, he's ready to go. He's been waiting for this for a long time. Morocco, finally being hurled back to try to bring Morocco back to the dressing room. And Snooker has been battered. But he is up, and he is on his feet. And for Morocco, I'll take, oh, Jimmy is now but look at him. Why do so many things like this happen to a man, a competitor like Stuka? Stuka wants Morocco, there's no doubt about it. Jay Strongbow out, everyone trying to calm this, there's a doctor, he's gonna need some help here. But Stuka, despite his open wound, Stuka very much on his feet, very much alive. They're taking Stuka out the far side, trying to keep him away as far as possible as Morocco. Another reason to join our Facebook group, if you want to remind me to do a, a screen grab of Mor the way Morocco is dressed for this, I will describe it for you. He is wearing a fairly nice, if not, but a little bit outdated sport coat. Uh, so, okay, he's got a pair of khakis on or whatever you call them in 1983. And then he's got a headband and sunglasses and he's wearing this like really 70s looking shirt and he's also wearing a pair of converse fast breaks <laughs> and, you know white basketball shoes i mean if, if anyone wants to see it just ask me for the screen grab and i'll put it up in the group steve this was the angle that we didn't know was coming but i mean i'm speaking for myself I didn't know it was coming, but I was hoping it was coming. I was hoping Snuka and Morocco would go at it, and here we are. I, I would say that this, uh, for fans of this era or people that grew up in this era, this was probably the most, to me, this would be like the most iconic moment of uh, just seeing Morocco on the outside and seeing Snuka take that leap uh, onto him on the floor, and then the two of them get it on uh, briefly. Um, it, it definitely was the kind of a, a match, like you say, fans were clamoring for. And I think really just because of their uh, – 
the 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 you know their two um, personalities you know Snuka the good guy and meek and humble and and Morocco this big loudmouth braggart it just seemed like a match made in heaven to have these two go against each other. It was a dream match. For me, it was a dream match. It was two guys who were at the absolute top of the of the wrestling game. And this is just a theory I have, okay? I don't want anyone, you know, going out there, you know, confusing my theories with facts or anything. But I mean, I really Morocco left at the end at the beginning of nineteen eighty two. And then he's back at the end of 1982. That that was unprecedented. Heels didn't come back that fast. And my theory was, well, the only guy who had did it like that was superstar Billy Graham, and he became WWF champion. So I'm like, okay, Morocco's going to be champion. But it turned out not to be. And my theory, Steve, is that Vince McMahon Jr. sat down. He's like, all right, I've got Jimmy Snuka, as hot a guy as anyone I've ever had. Who's the perfect opponent for him? Let's get Morocco about back here and let's get him back here quickly. It, it was a great decision right there. Uh, it, it's amazing the, the career trajectory these two had because these were two prelim boys in the AWA in the early 70s. And, and they both you know, worked you know, through various promotions, you know, small ones and big ones. And they, they both end up in New York at the same time together. Uh, and it just just it's so such an interesting matchup is they're so similar in in some ways you know they both have that uh uh island island boy background and uh morocco is hated and snooker is loved and it just it's a it was a match that every fan wanted to see I mean, I thought when Morocco came back, we would see Jimmy Snuka and Don Morocco main eventing Madison Square Garden for Morocco's WWF Championship, and maybe Snuka would get would wind up with the belt eventually. But of course, none of that happened. Now, I apologize to everyone. I don't have this. I couldn't find this anywhere. But the next week, they did this. Oh, by the way, I need to point out that like uh, Morocco took the ring mic and busted Snooker open, and they had the big red X on the screen. <laughs> so he, we missed that, but that was a really cool part of the angle. But the next week, Vince McMahon does an, uh, an interview with Jimmy Snooker where it's in the empty arena, and they're sitting in the, in the where the chairs are, uh, where the fans would normally be. And, you know, Vince, and Vince just, like, you know, talks about the angle, and then he's like, and then Jimmy... Jimmy, he spit. He spit right in your face, Jimmy. He's and Jimmy Snooker like starts shaking it and loses it and starts throwing the chairs around. It was hilarious. And I wish I had it, but I don't. If someone from the Facebook group has access to that, we would all love to see it again. Steve, do you remember this? I, I do remember. He he goes berserk and throws the chairs and uh but but you know, from the footage that you just played, uh you have to give Vince a ton of credit because the way he he announced the the, the engagement between each other it just seems so exciting i mean not even, i'm not even seeing the video and i'm excited just just listening to it i mean vince did a hell of a job there as an announcer no he really did he really did and you know i can't emphasize enough you know this was the match this was the feud that we all wanted to see and like i said just a theory i i think vince mcmahon brought don morocco back a little bit early just to have this feud uh, and, and it worked. I mean, it is still a 40 years later. It is a legendary feud. OK, Philadelphia Spectrum, the second biggest WWF city. 
WWF goes there June 4th, 1983. The main matches, let me see. Bob Backlund defeats Ivan Koloff uh, with a cross-faced chicken wing in 16 minutes and 45 seconds. Steve, it says that this aired on the Spectrum Network, but I have never seen it, never had access to it. What's going on? That's not supposed to happen to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess it just you know entices us to watch more and more of these obscure <laughs> matches. But uh, but uh, yeah, it, it had uh, Backlund against Koloff again. Uh, this one was only 16 minutes compared to the longer one that was on the uh, MSG card and the 40 something minute one that I saw. <laughs> That's right. And then you had another Andre against Stud match, uh, which uh, sounds like it went pretty uh, inconclusively. Uh, yeah, they're they're setting up for, I believe, a cage match. And, you know, ki- again, kind of a, you know, not a great show. I mean, Andre and Stud, Backlund and Koloff, it sounds good, but the, the undercard is kind of soft. Yet it drew almost 11,000, and wrestling sometimes doesn't draw well in the summer because people go away. Yeah, it, it's... Um... WWF at this time was wasn't a hot period. I mean, uh, I, I know people like to dump on Backlund by '83 and saying, "Hey, people are losing interest." But you know, if you go by box office, not really. They were they were doing really well box office. Well, you know what? I don't want to say they were doing well despite Backlund. That that's not true. At least the time period we're discussing, I I can't say that. But I don't think people were coming out. You know, oh, Bob Backlund's on the show. Let's go. I mean, Jimmy Snooker was red hot. They were bringing in some some, you know, top challengers for Backlund. I mean, it really felt like if if the title, if Hogan didn't sign on uh, November 1983, I think the WWF would have had to make a change right around that time regardless. I mean, I, I guess that's not a spring 1983 statement, but it really felt like the end should be coming near for the Backland era because, I mean, he'd been on top for five and a half years. I mean, at some point, you're just doing the same stuff over and over again. Well, well I mean, uh, you know, again, the as far as the challengers that were coming in, I mean, this year we had lots of recycled yes. challengers. I mean, uh, I mean, you had Koloff, you had Morocco, now we got Slaughter. Um, Steel. You know, um, Steel again. I mean, you you had the transition going from you know the elder Vince to the younger Vince, and you know younger Vince wanted to take this whole thing national, and of course now he's doing these international shows too. Uh, I think I think Vince, young Vince, knew that you know Backlund is my world champion probably isn't going to be like a great selling point to these new markets that haven't seen wrestling in a long time. And, and, and he knew that, Ho- you know, Hogan would probably be available if he gave him the right offer. And he did. And, and, uh, and we'll get to those shows we'll eventually, but, uh, but, but it's, it's just, just, um, you know, I, I think for you and I as long, long time fans, like you were speculating earlier, I mean, you thought Morocco was going to win the title, I, I don't think I was speculating like that, but I, I, I was just tired of Backlund as champion as a viewer. Yeah, at the time. and you know, I, I can't dispute, Steve, that this was still a, a very profitable and successful company with Bob Backlund on top. I, I certainly can't take that away from him. It just felt like, you know, the so it felt like by this point something needed to change, and obviously it would change in about six months. All right, let's go to another buddy Buddy Rogers corner. This time we have Jimmy Snooker and Rocky Johnson. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This week, my guest is none other than Rocky Johnson and also our very good friend, Jimmy Superfly Snooker. 
It's really a superb pleasure, fellas. These guys are really friends, and I mean friends to the core. We've been through a lot of wars, we three, and I'll tell you, it seems like we're zeroing in on really getting the job, really getting the job done, and we got one name in mind, Magnificent Morocco. Before you go any farther, buddy, I just want to say this. Between me and Jimmy, we got our mind set on one thing. Morocco shot his mouth off the line. I've proven I can beat the man. I beat him twice. But I want to say this. A lot of people don't know it, but Jimmy Snooker is family to me, brother. He's just like my brother. I think more of him than I do anybody. And I know between the two of us, if it's not me, it'll be Jimmy and Don Morocco. Your day is coming very, very close, brother. Jimbo? There's only one thing I'd like to tell you, Brother Rock, and also you, my good friend. Rocky, if there's only one way you can do it, brother, is to get a key for this cage and let this animal get out of there, brother. Because down well, ladies Morocco, and gentlemen, I guess you know they're both determined, and they will get the job done. Thank you, and we'll go back to the ringside wrestling. You know, I know Buddy Rogers was an icon and a legend. I have nothing but respect for the guy. But if I'm Vince McMahon, I'm like, you know what? I got to have somebody else doing this pretty soon. He he was just uh, ending Snooker before Snooker was done there. He's just ending the segment completely. Yeah, I mean, you know, and he's, I mean, let's face it, you know, he's getting older. His his speech is reflecting that. And, you know, I I, I mean, Vince has to look at things with, with a critical eye. I mean, I know Buddy was kind of brought in as a, a babysitter for Snooker, but, you know, th- this is not good television. No, and, and, yeah, yeah I, w- I was never a fan of the Buddy Rogers corner. It, w- it was it was right up there with the Robert DeBoer the Victory Corner, two, two very bad segments. Oh, the, the DeBoer thing was 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 a, it was just legendary. It was so bad. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Boston Garden, June eleventh, nineteen eighty three. Once again, drawing a big house, thirteen thousand plus fans, and if I recall correctly, all of the good seats were taken. Just a couple of pockets in, in the corners were not filled. Uh, the main event, Bob Backlund versus Sergeant Slaughter. It was a good match. I do remember it. Uh, the semi-main event was Andre the Giant and Big John Studd in a steel cage. Now, I know some people here like, oh, Andre and Studd, that must have been terrible. All I remember is that, Steve, I had no complaints. Yeah, in a steel cage match, too. That, that's kind of unusual. Yeah, I mean, that's the way to, you know, I mean, think about that. Guys that big in a cage, you know, I'm, I'm, I am just turned 18. I was all excited about it. <laughs> and, and, and do you remember the Slaughter-Backland match at all? Was it a good competitive I, match? I do remember it was a good back and forth. It ended in a, a, a Slaughter defeats Backland by a countout. I really don't remember anything about the match, you know, either good or bad. I just remember being happy to be at the show. And then we had kind of an unusual match uh, on the show. There was... Um, Chief J. Strongbow and Jimmy Snuka defeat the Samoans by disqualification. Strongbow keeps getting this kind of nice push in Boston. Yeah, and, and why were they thrown together? Do you think it was a case of uh, of Jules was unavailable? I or think something, Jules or? had already left the territory, and we'll do the summer of 1983 pretty soon. But I mean, you know, Jimmy Snuka and the Samoans were going up against each other in either a tag team match or a six man tag team match practically every night 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is. It is strange to see Strongbow still in a, in a key position like that. Do you, do you as, as a fan of the magazines and, and a fan of the NWA wrestling, uh, do you do you remember seeing Don Cornoodle and what were your thoughts about I him? Do, I do know, did know about Don Cornoodle, and I saw him, you know, he and Slaughter arrived at the same time, and I thought the whole thing was weird. I knew they were connected, and, you know, they were NWA tag team champions, yet the WWF never acknowledged that they were together, and I figured, okay, sooner or later they're going to throw an angle together where Carnotal becomes, you know, the private again. They just do what they did in Mid Atlantic Wrestling, but no, Carnotal just stayed at the bottom of the card. I mean, what were your thoughts? I, well, I was kind of like you. I mean, I knew he had been somebody in another promotion, but I, I, I was kind of surprised that they weren't really doing anything with him. He was just kind of like a, almost like a Charlie Fulton guy. Yes, a guy good comparison. Decent. Yeah, decent, but not really going anywhere. Uh, I thought it was funny at the MSG show that I watched this morning uh, when it was time for the Slaughter against Backlund match, and they showed uh, uh, Slaughter coming out uh, of the curtain to come to the ring. Uh, you can see Cronoda was right there in the, in the wings going to watch the match. Uh, he's obviously rooting for Slaughter You would to think win. so. But- it was right. funny how wrestling was back in the days. It wasn't like, you know, some guys got along with, you know, some guys and not with other ones. There was a definite line between the baby faces and the heels and they all, all the heels and baby faces got along with each other and they, the baby faces, he hated the heels and vice versa. You know, one thing, one thing I have to admit to our listeners uh, is I watched these old shows that, from the garden uh, MSG. Uh, the the one thing that that amuses me the most, more than anything else, even more than the bad commentary, <laughs> is uh, when when they they show you that that you know little snippet of view of of the like gorilla position or the area you know in the back at the garden, and you know, you might see Vince's father, you might see like like I saw Jim Barnett in this one today. He's standing right next to the entrance, and and there was one funny one where. I think it was Ernie Roth, the Grand Wizard, had taken Slaughter to the ring for the title match, but then he goes back to the dressing room, and they show him like you know going back to the dressing room behind beyond the curtain, and they're like right in the area, like in the gorilla position area, is is Andre the Giant just sitting there, and like back in the old kayfabe days, you would think like, oh my God, Andre's sitting there, and then the Grand Wizard's walking by, why doesn't he yeah. just grab him and beat him up or that, something? But exactly. But, but it was like a different world by 83. You know, they were really going in a completely different area. It, it really was a different world. I mean, you would think Andre would see the Grand Wizard walking by and just put him through the wall. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm sure a lot of fans were hoping that would happen. All right. Uh, finally, Madison Square Garden, June 17th, 1983. Uh, main event, Sergeant Slaughter, second match against Bob Backlund, defeats him via countout. And then we have Chief J. Strongbow losing to George the Animal Steel, where the match was stopped due to blood. I'd like to see that one. That's That's weird, Steve. Yeah, I think I think at their ages, seeing seeing Chase Rombo do a you know juice job, uh, he must have had somebody like on hand to give him a transfusion <laughs> or something. Oh <laughs> man, I mean, it's just weird to have that match uh, a blood stop in the middle of the card. I knew that I know they did it in '82 with Orton and uh, Rick McGraw, but it, it's still kind of strange. And then uh, an interesting match that they have. I was just talking about Jimmy Snuka and the Samoans being you know c- connected at the hip. Uh, you know, summer of 1983. Ivan Putski, Jimmy Snuka, and Rocky Johnson over Morocco and the Samoans in a two out of three falls match. That's one I'd like to see as well. 
Yeah, I, you know, t- to be honest with you, I mean, and I've watched all these, um, as many garden shows as I can get my hands on. I mean, from like 75 to, you know, national expansion, like 84, it, to me, it just seems like these six-man matches or the tag team matches would end the show at the garden. They were always just like, just the yeah. same, you know, just like the goofy ending. It didn't really matter who wins. It was always usually the good guys win, but, you know, it was just a sloppy <laughs> match just to end the night kind of. I mean, they had one. We'll we'll talk about this in the summer show. I think they had like a a three out of five falls match at the Philadelphia Spectrum, and it's like there's a fall every ninety seconds. It's not what we were used to. <laughs> I think I think that was the, wasn't that the match that Billy Graham was in? Like it was like a five against five, something I think. like that. You might be right, but they had one in the summer too, like that was similar to this one. Yeah, yeah, it was just, just it was yet another one of those matches where poor Billy Graham just looked like just a shell of his former yeah, self. It, it was sad, but anyway, that wraps up our WWF Spring of 1983. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening, Steve. Excellent job as always. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to our next show. All right, t- totally. And I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, for all the great work he does. I want to get, thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 